Welcome to Talking Legal History. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Samantha Barbas is professor of law at the University at Buffalo School of Law. She researches and teaches in the areas of legal history, First Amendment law, and mass communications law. Her work focuses on the intersection of law, culture, media, and technology in United States history. Her recent research has explored the history of censorship, privacy, and defamation. Today, we'll be discussing her book, The Rise and Fall of Morris Ernst, Free Speech Renegade. Professor Barbas, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. To begin, could you just tell us who Morris Ernst was and why we should be reading a biography of him? So Morris Ernst was the celebrity lawyer of the 1930s. I think if there had been a CNN at that time, he would have been on it. Morris Ernst was a gadfly. He was friends with everyone who was anyone in politics, in the arts, in New York. He was this confident guy who talked in a tough and gravelly voice with a thick New York accent, and he wore tailored pinstripe suits. He hosted famous soirees in his elegant home with the likes of celebrities from Groucho Marx to Walter Winchell. In his heyday in the 1940s, Morris Ernst had his own private table at the Stork Club. So in the 30s and 40s, Morris Ernst was one of the best known liberal lawyers in the country. An eminent attorney in private practice, an early leader of the American Civil Liberties Union and its general counsel for over 25 years. Morris Ernst was renowned for his work on behalf of various liberal causes, especially fighting for free speech, in particular, the fight against literary censorship. Morris Ernst was the lawyer who defended James Joyce's banned novel, Ulysses. With his trademark bravado, Morris Ernst came to the defense of things like sex education manuals, nudist treatises, burlesque shows, and risque films. Before World War II, no one did more than Morris Ernst to extend legal protections to art, literature, theater, and movies. But battling censorship was only one of Morris Ernst's free speech causes. Believing that democracy and human enlightenment depended on the free play of ideas in the marketplace of thought, as he put it, Morris Ernst worked to expand that marketplace on many different fronts. He authored several books, 21 books, in fact, dozens of newspaper columns, scores of articles in which he publicized and popularized his views on free speech. Morris Ernst litigated a number of landmark First Amendment cases, including the 1939 Supreme Court case Haig versus CIO, which established the public forum doctrine. He was at the forefront of countless organizations and initiatives. For a while, Ernst served as a legal advisor to the NAACP. Organized labor was another of Morris Ernst's causes. He was counsel for Margaret Sanger. Morris Ernst litigated cases that legalized the dissemination of contraception in the 1930s. He was also, for many years, an informal advisor to President Roosevelt. 
One of the most interesting things about Ernst's story is that his life took kind of a sharp turn in the 1940s when he became consumed by the cause of fighting communism. Ernst became convinced that communists were infiltrating various liberal groups he was involved with, including the ACLU. He came to believe that communists were damaging these groups. Uh, they were tarnishing their images, disrupting their work, and subverting them to anti-democratic purposes. So Ernst became obsessed with purging these organizations of communist influence. And by the early 1950s, he was one of the most vigilant anti-communists on the left. In one of Morris Ernst's most disgraceful episodes, he became a defender of the FBI. Duped by FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, Ernst came to believe that Hoover was the nation's most valiant fighter against the communist menace, and that Hoover had been unfairly maligned by liberals who questioned the FBI's civil liberties record. So Ernst took it upon himself to become a sort of informal public relations agent for the FBI. He tried to quash criticism of the FBI. He would write favorable articles about the FBI and would even go as far as to alert Hoover when the ACLU was planning to criticize the FBI. In this way, I believe Ernst damaged the cause of civil liberties. So Morris Ernst's story has always been important. I think it's always needed to be told, but it is particularly important now because the issues that he cared about and the issues that he worked on are in many ways more contested than ever. So I set out to write the life of this complex, very contradictory and fascinating man key figure in the ACLU who transformed free speech in America and was at the center of some of the 20th century's most significant civil liberties causes. Could you tell us a bit about Morris Ernst's background and his path to law? So Morris Ernst was in some ways a really unlikely candidate for who he became. Uh, Morris Ernst had a very interesting background. His wasn't exactly a rags to riches story because he was never poor, but he did surmount a number of obstacles in his early life. But Morris Ernst's father, Carl, immigrated from the Czech Republic to rural Alabama in the 1850s. This was unusual as Alabama was not a typical destination for Jewish immigrants. His father was what was known as a pack peddler. So he would carry dry goods of various kinds, uh, things like you know, soap and thread and flour in a huge backpack uh, throughout the countryside and peddle these items to rural families. After years of this hard labor, Morris Ernst's father saved enough to open a business in a small Alabama town. Uh, he was very successful. The family eventually moved to New York where Morris Ernst's father was a banker and a real estate person, and the family was pretty well off. Uh, they had in their social circle 
many intellectuals and professionals in the educated German Jewish community in New York. Many people in this community went on to become quite renowned in politics and the arts. So the Ernst family was sort of at the lower end of this social circle. They were well off, but they were not truly wealthy. And this caused Morris, who was as a young boy, already intensely competitive, to feel quite insecure. Ernst learned at a young age that if he wanted to stand out in this community of wealthy and cultured individuals, he would have to find something that distinguished him and made him special. Now, he was smart, but he wasn't really brilliant. He was not athletic. He was not especially charismatic. But he was very good at getting people to pay attention to him. And he discovered early on that that was his special trait. He had an uncanny ability to kind of get on the cutting edge of things, get on the edge of controversy, and to be provocative. He learned how to do this in grammar school and in high school and at college. He went to Williams College, which was an elite liberal arts college in Western Massachusetts. And this really kind of became his trademark, being a provocateur on various issues. So Morris Ernst started his career rather humbly. He worked as a manager in a family-owned garment factory in Brooklyn. He later worked as a salesman in a furniture store, selling dining room sets and lamps to newlyweds. Realizing that this sort of work wasn't going to satisfy him in the long term, he decided at the age of 27 to go to law school, and he attended night school at New York Law School, graduating in 1912. At this time, uh, anti-Semitism in the legal profession posed a bar to Ernst getting a job in an elite law firm. So with a couple of friends, young men who were also Jewish, uh, he started a small law firm called Greenbaum, Wolf, and Ernst. This firm eventually became quite prestigious. It became a sort of boutique law firm that would be known for its work in media law and especially literary law. But this eventually very revered firm started out just as three guys in a room with a few beat up desks. Uh, the old elevated railroad outside roared by so loudly that it was practically impossible for anyone to talk in the office. The whole thing was kind of a fly-by-night operation. But what was important about Ernst's early career was what he started doing on the side of his law job, namely getting involved in the progressive movement. So progressivism, this was the social and political movement centered in New York in the early 20th century that was a response to social problems created by industrialization and urbanization. Progressive reformers, as is well known, joined together to seek legislation, to break up monopolies, uh, to eliminate poverty. They called for minimum wage laws, for child labor laws, and other provisions. These causes resonated with Ernst's nascent political and social commitments, and he began to get involved with various progressive organizations and started to make a name for himself as an ambitious young activist. This brought him to the attention of Roger Baldwin, 
the reformer who was at that time creating the American Civil Liberties Union. So the ACLU was really the product of the First World War. Baldwin and the others who joined him in creating the ACLU were reacting to the tremendous repression of dissent as the government cracked down on speech that was critical of the war effort through various sedition laws. This repressive attitude was shared by much of the population at the time, which believed that people who were allegedly unpatriotic or foreign or different from the majority in some way should not have the right to speak publicly on their views, lest they subvert the social order. There was no legal protection for the persecuted at this time. There was no free speech law really to speak of. And so the ACLU committed itself to the defense of unpopular views. The organization worked on the legal defense of the persecuted. It also tried to change public opinion in an effort to render repressive laws irrelevant and unenforceable. Ernst and Baldwin got to know each other through their work on various progressive causes, and Baldwin began asking Ernst for legal advice for the ACLU. Ernst did this advisory work on the side, at night, at the same time he was building up a really successful law practice. So by day, he would defend banks and real estate companies, and then in the evening, he would go down to these civil liberties meetings that attracted individuals from across the political spectrum. Ernst was a liberal politically, but he, he would not have been considered to be a radical or on the far left by any means. The 1920s was quite a conservative period in many respects. Uh, the persecution of radicals continued. States passed compulsory Bible reading laws. Many laws were passed that restricted freedom of speech and assembly. Universities ousted instructors with unpopular views. And it was in this context in the late 1920s that Ernst took the position of general counsel of the ACLU and helped lead the organization's defense of free speech rights. He did this informally starting in 1926. Then in 1929, he took up the position formally as co-general counsel of the ACLU, along with Arthur Garfield Hayes, who was another well-known civil liberties lawyer. And throughout his career, Ernst embraced what could be described as a viewpoint-neutral philosophy of speech, summarized by the famous quote of Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, freedom for the thought that we hate. So under this view, the way for a society to rule itself democratically was not through the suppression of views regarded as questionable or unpopular, but through the airing and discussion of all points of view, leaving noxious and dangerous ideas to be dispelled in the marketplace of ideas. This was the viewpoint that led Ernst rather controversially to defend the speech rights of the Nazis he despised. In 1933, New York City uh, refused the Nazis a permit to speak, and Ernst argued that they did have a right to hold a public rally. For this defense of unpopular speakers, Morris Ernst attracted no small amount of criticism. Uh, Ernst maintained that free speech as a principle demanded the defense of 
the rights of all who were attacked in order to obtain the rights of any, as he put it. So how did Morris Ernst get involved in the Ulysses case? And we're just, uh, I guess, about a week away from Bloomsday. So um, it's an appropriate question for June. Yeah, so the Ulysses case was uh, one of the most famous literary obscenity cases in US history. Just uh, to give a quick summary of the history of literary obscenity law up to that point in 1933, the history of uh, obscenity law really goes back to the 19th century and to the infamous Comstock laws, laws that uh, suppressed purportedly obscene material. Under the prevailing legal definition of obscenity, which held pretty much through the first half of the 20th century, a book or film or artwork was considered obscene if it had the potential to corrupt the most susceptible person into whose hands it may fall. So if a book would have the tendency to corrupt a child, then the book could be condemned as obscene and its author or publisher or seller criminally punished. And this definition was known as the Hicklin test after a famous case from the 1880s. So under the Hicklin standard, an adult's reactions to a book, the work's literary merit, and the actual readership of the book were irrelevant. Works were judged on the criterion of whether they were safe for children. Books could be condemned on the basis of isolated passages taken out of context. So under this test, it was often noted, uh, the Bible and Shakespeare could be obscene. Courts rejected the opinions of experts and literary critics as irrelevant in determining whether a work was fit for public consumption. So in the 1920s, Morris Ernst had been involved in a number of important literary censorship cases involving novels dealing with sexual issues or themes. The 1920s was actually a time when literary censorship laws were being enforced quite aggressively. In 1928, Ernst defended the novel, The Well of Loneliness by Radcliffe Hall. This is one of the first major novels to deal with the theme of lesbianism. Ernst had gotten The Well of Loneliness and other novels cleared in the courts that is, he got the courts to interpret obscenity laws such that these books would not be considered obscene. And he was doing all of this work pro bono through his law firm and not through the ACLU because the ACLU did not take up literary censorship as a cause, at least initially. Roger Baldwin, founder of the ACLU, did not see literary censorship as implicating free speech issues. He believed that literature, theater, and other types of artistic expression were non-political, he described them, and, and therefore beyond the realm of the ACLU. Now that changed in the 1930s when the ACLU created a subgroup called the National Council on Freedom from Censorship. But Morris Ernst was really the first ACLU leader to suggest that literary and artistic censorship implicated free speech issues. So Ernst by the 1930s had become the main lawyer for the book industry in these censorship cases and 
kind of a pioneer of literary freedom. And Ernst's main argument in these cases was not a First Amendment argument. At that time, courts were not willing to broach the possibility that sexually themed material fell within the protections of the Constitution. Instead, Ernst relied on the argument that the Hicklin test was outdated and that obscenity must be judged according to the norms and morals of the time. So Ulysses was the most notorious banned book in the country in 1931. Ernst believed that based on precedents in cases that he himself had litigated, he could get the ban on Ulysses removed. So he started a test case to liberate Ulysses as he described it. And it's important to know that there was kind of a network of obscenity laws existing at different levels in different jurisdictions at the time. So there were state criminal laws against obscenity. There were federal laws against mailing obscene material. And one of the particular laws that Ulysses was condemned under was federal customs law which prohibited the importation of allegedly obscene material. Penalty for doing so was a fine and a seizure of the offending material. So the story of how the Ulysses case got started is really interesting. Um, Ernst had gotten to know many New York book publishers and one of them was Bennett Cerf, who was the publisher of Random House. Ernst said to Cerf that he believed the time had come to get Ulysses legalized and would Cerf wanna be involved in a test case to do this. And so he proposed to Cerf, if you work with me to get this book cleared in the courts, if we win Random House, you know, you can publish the book and I will get 5% of the royalties indefinitely. So Ernst made a deal, get 5% of the royalties from the publication of Ulysses and that paid off rather handsomely for Ernst over the years. So Ernst explained that this was gonna be a customs case because it would involve the importation of printed copies of Ulysses from France. The book would presumably be seized by customs and then Morris Ernst would challenge the seizure of the books. He had actually used this strategy successfully in two previous cases. In April, 1932, Joyce's agent in Paris sent copies of Ulysses by ship to Random House in New York with the expectation that the books would be seized by customs. But the customs office wouldn't seize the books at first, uh, the books went through. Ernst marched down to the customs office to ask what had happened. And the inspector said, oh, for God's sake, everybody brings that in, we don't pay attention to it. Meaning that so many people had smuggled in Ulysses that customs had given up trying to stop the entry of the book. Ernst demanded that the customs officials seize the book so he did, and then the test case began. So the Ulysses case was heard in federal court before Judge John Woolsey, a very eccentric judge, as I describe in the book. Ernst made the argument that Ulysses was not obscene and that the Hicklin test must be overruled, that obscenity must be judged according to the morals of the time. Ernst said that the prudish views of the 19th century that were embodied in the Hicklin test just didn't hold up in a modern era of tabloids and movie stars and more forthright sexual expression. 
Ernst said that the law has to keep up with social norms. And that was really a theme throughout his whole career. The law must be flexible and it must adapt to lived circumstances of the time. Ernst's argument before Woolsey was probably one of the more memorable courtroom arguments of his time, I'm sure. Uh, one of Ernst's points that he wanted to impress upon the judge was the arbitrariness of words. He asked, how could four letters strung in random order possibly be obscene? Ernst had a famous discussion in the courtroom of the F word, which is published in Ulysses and had been one of the grounds for it having been deemed obscene. Ernst said there was nothing dirty or obscene about that word. He told the judge that in its contemporary usage, the word was cleaner and less revolting than paraphrases of it. He said it had more integrity than a euphemism used every day in every modern novel to describe precisely the same event. Judge Woolsey asked, for example, Ernst said, they slept together. It means the same thing. Woolsey laughed, but counselor, that isn't even usually the truth. And it was at that moment that Morris Ernst knew he had won the case. Judge Woolsey wrote a famous opinion exonerating Ulysses. Woolsey declared that a literary work must be judged as a whole and assessed for its effects on the average adult according to contemporary moral standards. This decision was upheld by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which rejected the Hickland test and replaced it with a community standards test so that what was obscene was dependent on community norms. And the Ulysses decision lay the foundation for eventual Supreme Court decisions that formally adopted the community standards test. So this decision transformed the law of literature in America and it also transformed Ernst's career. Ernst was celebrated in the media and became kind of a cultural icon and uh, this changed Ernst's aspirations. He began to believe that he could be not only a great lawyer, but also a political player and an insider. And so for the rest of his life, Ernst kind of jockeyed to get in various political positions and uh, began a friendship with President Roosevelt and served as his informal advisor for over a decade. The book is titled The Rise and Fall of Morris Ernst. Why did Ernst fall? Morris Ernst fell. Uh, that is to say that he fell into disrepute in the liberal circles in which he was once championed because he became an ardent anti-communist. By 1939, Ernst had become a red baiter, as he put it. Uh, in his words, frankly, a baiter of the communists and the Nazis and all those who are opposed to our Bill of Rights. To understand how one of the nation's preeminent liberals became an ardent anti-communist, which today may seem curious, we have to understand something about the social climate of the time. In the mid-1930s, communism was a significant force in American public life during the Great Depression, a time of hopelessness and despair, the Communist Party was responding to conditions with action, organizing unemployed workers, conducting marches for relief, forming militant unions. 
And Ernst turned his wrath against the communists, and there are a number of reasons for this. One, Ernst was opposed to the communists on ideological grounds. He was outraged by the seeming hypocrisy of liberals who professed to stand for democracy and civil liberties, yet refused to condemn repression in the Soviet Union. Even more, Ernst was concerned with the increasing presence of Communist Party members and their allies in liberal organizations. Communists and their allies were involved in many of the groups with which Ernst was affiliated, including the National Lawyers Guild. This was an organization of progressive pro-New Deal lawyers that Ernst founded in 1937. Communists were to some extent involved in the ACLU. And the ACLU was never a communist affiliated or communist front organization, although it was frequently accused of being one, especially by the House Un-American Activities Committee, which came into being in 1938 and made the ACLU a target of its accusations. There were a few communists on the ACLU board of directors. Ernst's bitterness towards the communists was also a result of his personal experiences, and this may have been the greatest source of his animus. Ernst believed that communists and their sympathizers had pushed him out of organizations such as the National Lawyers Guild and that they challenged his leadership. This hurt his fragile ego. Ernst had become afraid that communists and their sympathizers were destroying liberal organizations by creating internal divisions in the groups, disrupting their work, and tarnishing their public image, leaving them vulnerable to attacks from the right wing. Ernst believed that if liberals did not act swiftly to purge their organizations of communist influence, everything that he had worked for would be compromised. So he believed that liberal groups had to become explicitly anti-communist to preserve their own integrity and to defend themselves against attacks from the right wing, including HUAC. Ernst began a campaign in 1938 to purge the Lawyers Guild of its radical members, in effect, by implementing a loyalty oath. He then started a similar effort to purge the ACLU of its communist members. This effort precipitated one of the most controversial episodes in the ACLU's history. The group that had committed itself to free expression and freedom of belief engaged in an ideological purge. At Ernst's instigation, the ACLU issued an internal policy in 1941 stating that it would not tolerate communists on the board of directors because communism was incompatible with civil liberties. This led to the expulsion from the board of directors of Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who was a famous radical labor leader who was a Communist Party member. As one historian has observed, with the Flynn expulsion, the nation's most important liberal organization officially signed on to the anti-communist crusade. The ACLU ultimately recanted this, and the episode was seen as one of the organization's great moral lapses. Uh, but this was just the beginning of uh, Ernst's anti-communist efforts. By 1950, his anti-communism had carried him to extreme positions toward a defense of repressive government actions, including prosecution of communist leaders under the Smith Act and the FBI's anti-radical program. 
What really led to Morris Ernst's fall from grace was his notorious relationship with J. Edgar Hoover. So how did Ernst get involved with J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI? Yeah, so it was in the context of these anti-communist efforts that Ernst got to know FBI director J. Edgar Hoover in 1938. This is apparently through a mutual social connection. Hoover managed to convince Ernst that the FBI was a progressive professional law enforcement organization with respect for civil liberties and individual rights. Hoover effectively duped Ernst, who came to believe this line. Ernst became convinced that whatever rumors and gossip and suspicions swirled around the FBI, as he put it, Hoover respected civil liberties and the FBI must be defended against accusations of impropriety. And this was before the civil liberties abuses of the FBI were widely known. So Ernst effectively volunteered to serve as a kind of informal public relations agent, kind of image manager for the FBI and for Hoover. Hoover relied on Ernst to fix his various public relations problems. And Ernst and Hoover worked together to shape the FBI's public image. One thing Ernst would do often was attempt to use his many connections in the media to quash criticism of the FBI. Ernst would sometimes write laudatory favorable articles about Hoover and the FBI or the press. Sometimes Ernst would tell Hoover when a negative article was coming out about the FBI. He would give Hoover advice on how to respond to the piece and sometimes would try to suppress the article. Occasionally, Ernst would pressure editors of magazines and newspapers to send him advanced copies of articles for censoring and pre-screening. This is rather ironic for you know, a man who worked much of his life fighting against censorship. Whenever a critical article about the FBI appeared, Ernst would write angry letters to the publishers, educating them on what he described as the true facts about the FBI. He believed that the FBI had the most remarkable police record of the nation. And these efforts did have the effect to some extent of deflecting criticism of the FBI from liberals in the 40s and 50s. As one journalist described it, Ernst's endorsement of the FBI functioned as a kind of left-wing good housekeeping seal of approval. Morris Ernst discouraged members of the ACLU from criticizing the FBI, and indeed the ACLU's criticism of the Bureau was pretty meek during the 40s and 50s. It refused to pursue allegations of FBI violations of civil liberties. So in part due to Ernst's efforts, the organization that had the prestige and independence to expose the illegalities of the FBI took a disturbingly passive route. Even more disturbing, Ernst alerted Hoover when the ACLU was planning to publicly criticize the FBI and provided Hoover with ACLU reports and minutes of board meetings. This, this was quite a betrayal of his colleagues. As the Red Scare intensified in the 1950s, defending the FBI became Morris Ernst's main crusade. 
injected him into almost every public controversy surrounding the FBI and was always ready to provide public relations advice to Hoover. He wrote several FBI, pro-FBI articles for magazines. The most egregious was a notorious article that appeared in the Reader's Digest in 1950 titled, Why I No Longer Fear the FBI. The main point of the article was that of a famous liberal who viewed the FBI with great suspicion and some fear, investigated it for himself and emerged as one of its most enthusiastic champions. Ernst's relationship with J. Edgar Hoover was very obsessive and almost childlike. Uh, throughout his life, Ernst felt that he needed someone powerful to please, kind of an authority figure. He would call Hoover the boss. He had actually called FDR the boss as well. And so reading the correspondence between Hoover and Ernst, you know, was, it was very fascinating in light of this relationship. Their relationship came to a rather sudden end in the late 1950s. Uh, Hoover just became disgusted, apparently, with Ernst's arrogance. Or Ernst would go on the radio and boast about how close he was to Hoover and how Hoover was a you know, great friend. And Hoover just cut off Ernst very abruptly, and this hurt Ernst greatly. Morris Ernst's extensive correspondence with Hoover actually came to light a year after Ernst's death in 1977 through a Freedom of Information Act request by the ACLU. The New York Times reported that Ernst passed information from the ACLU to the FBI. According to the Times, the documents showed that Ernst alerted the FBI to anti-FBI sentiment held by some ACLU members and to the plans of some ACLU members to attack the FBI. So Ernst's legacy was complicated, to say the least. What are a few key points you'd like readers and listeners to take away from your study of Morris Ernst's life? There is no question that Morris Ernst had great impact in the fields in which he worked, notably a field of freedom of expression, by 1950, there was a well-developed body of First Amendment law where none had existed a few decades earlier. Social norms moved in the direction of greater tolerance of unorthodox views, and the ACLU and Morris Ernst had a hand in these developments. In part due to Ernst's efforts, the ACLU went from a persecuted fringe group uh, in its early years to a respected and even mainstream institution by the 1940s. By the end of the Second World War in the ACLU and the cause of civil liberties more generally were no longer guarded necessarily as you know, un-American as they uh, had once been. A majority of the populace had come to believe that uh, civil liberties were uh, at the core of the American democratic ideal as ACLU publicity had long preached. Ernst was a man of contradictions, as I think I've suggested already. He was generous and patient, but at the same time, unusually vindictive and thin-skinned. He was brilliant, but his thinking could also be sloppy and contradictory. Uh, Ernst was generous. He had many friends. Uh, he was warm and compassionate. Yet he could also betray his colleagues without the slightest pangs of conscience. He was very shrewd and strategic, but 
also whimsical and impulsive. He was known for plunging ahead into causes and plans uh, without any direction. The man who defended Ulysses later defended a Dominican dictator and attempted to infiltrate the defense team of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg for the FBI. Certainly, you know, his allegiances were many and contradictory. One thing that was so fascinating about Ernst that was really hard for me to grapple with as a biographer was the breadth of his activities. Ernst was often referred to as a human dynamo, and I think that is quite apt. In addition to all of his civil liberties work and all of his writing and advising, he had a fascinating law practice, maintaining what one journalist described as one of the most human and luscious law practices in New York. He had a large and eclectic roster of clients ranging from Wall Street banking houses to labor unions and writers and artists. And he was known for taking clients regardless of their views. He had the same approach to his personal life. He had friends from wildly divergent backgrounds whom he hosted in these famous soirees in his elegant New York home. He often said that he tried to create in those parties a true marketplace of ideas, as he believed in his words, that debate was the necessary precursor to thoughtful conclusions. With all of this activity, uh, writing Morris Ernst's life was not an easy feat. He left behind a massive collection of personal papers, 590 boxes of archival material that are held at the Harry Ransom Center at the University of Texas. In addition, Ernst wrote 21 published books. He had hundreds of other writings on a range of topics from the Supreme Court to obscenity to ESP. Ernst calculated that he wrote over a million words a year. Even with these achievements, Ernst had a passion for exaggeration. This also posed challenges for a biography. Especially in his old age, Ernst circulated many fibs about himself, uh, many half-truths, with the most egregious, which is now circulated on the internet as fact, that he was a founder of the ACLU. Morris Ernst was not an ACLU founder and did not become involved with that organization until half a decade into its career. Ernst, of course, is a very significant figure in uh, law and American culture, but he did not have a biography until this one. Ernst was very eager for a biography to be written, but was skeptical that it could be done. He once told a potential biographer, it's sheer madness. It's madness for anyone to try. The only thing anyone could do is to tell a story in terms of a diluted person who runs from one thing to another and has no mainstreams. Often when an important figure does not have a biography, it's because there are not enough sources. A person didn't leave behind enough material for a biographer to compose a story of their life. But with Ernst, I feel like it might've been the opposite situation, that there were simply too many sources. There was actually too much information to try to compile in a biography. You know, Ernst was involved in so many different areas and so many different organizations and causes. It's really challenging to try to keep track of everything. So uh, I, I did what I could 
uh, with Ernst's life story. Inevitably, there are a number of things I had to omit. Uh, I had to leave out many relationships, many writings, many cases. But I do hope that I was able to uh, capture to some degree this truly fascinating man and his significant and enduring accomplishments and his uh, captivating and rather paradoxical personality. Great. Well, Professor Barbas, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it.